Green Thumbs Rejoice. It's the Bob Olin Show, brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feed Bin in Superior. The WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Now, KDAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. All right, good morning, Bob, and uh, welcome to a beautiful summer we got going here. Oh, we really do at this point, and today is one of the greatest, for sure, beautiful out there. Yeah, we'll have a little rain later on, apparently. Hopefully the storms won't be too severe, but we need the water again, and we got plenty of sunshine, warm temperatures, so I guess couldn't ask for more uh, as far as the growing season goes. Uh, that's right. It's coming along real nicely, and uh, we hope this uh, weather pattern continues uh, We'll have to see here what happens in July. That's typically our uh, driest month. June is typically our our moist or our wettest month, and I think this is probably followed uh, followed this year as well when it was very very uh, in some areas in particular. Now, well, rain can be kind of spotty sometimes. I know it certainly was yesterday. Uh, we were out in one field, one uh, uh, particular farmer. All of a sudden, uh, some rain clouds came up. He had hay, hay down on the ground. Got a little bit concerned by that because it wasn't in the forecast. So we can get these pop-up showers certainly all over the place uh, this time of year. But so far, moisture levels are pretty good in the soil. Uh, we're coming along nicely, we're coming into this dry month of July. But so far, we're off to a very good start. Are we harvesting anything yet? Well, you know, we're we're obviously harvesting some of the uh, spring perennial crops, both rhubarb and asparagus. A lot of the leafy greens are being harvested at this point. And, uh, you know, it won't be too long. Maybe with this early season we'll get some, uh, uh, certainly some of the very early summer squash, maybe some zucchini uh, coming early. Uh, we look for that. Uh, some of the green beans, if you got in early enough, will be coming along. So uh, it won't be too long. But most of our harvest really comes uh, toward the third week in July and then into August. August and September are probably our largest harvest months, Dave. I'm guessing radishes are probably due about now. Yeah, they pop pretty fast, so some <laughs> of the salad uh, salad crops will be coming very early. And you want to grab those early because uh, they do tend to go. They don't like to heat later in the year, mm. year, so it's time to time to start harvesting some of those for sure. All right, sounds good. And, uh, well, how's your crops looking at this point? Look pretty fair. Coming out of the ground, got corn out. Mm-hmm. We've got... Uh, you know, I'm on a little lighter soil, so I'm a little concerned always about moisture. We missed a little bit of the early rain, but so far we got uh, we made up for that. So uh, feeling pretty good about the year so far. Fourth of July coming already next week. What the corn's supposed to be? What knee high or? It's supposed to be, and maybe <laughs> for some folks it is. Uh, not in my case, but oh, okay. uh, it, it certainly is for some folks, and uh, particularly a little bit farther south. It's south that <laughs> crop looks real good. Yeah, uh, it's important this year with uh, grain supplies right. being low to low on a global basis, and I know in some of the major production areas it got a little too moist. So it's it's always kind of interesting, but uh, very very dry in the southwest as we anticipated. Let's see if uh, if Noah's right. They've been predicting for a long time not not June. They've been right on June. We'll have uh, adequate moisture in June, but they've said July and August uh, could be pretty dry. So we'll see what happens going forward here, Dave. Still looking for hot weather too, I guess. A little bit warmer than average yeah. uh, temperatures and a little bit cooler than average uh, or lower than average precipitation is what they're still looking for. But we'll we'll see that can certainly change, and weather, as we all know, can be very unpredictable. All right, Bob, we'll take our first break here at 919. It's the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. And we're back. More of the Bob Olin Show. And again, Bob is uh, certainly available to answer your questions about gardening. Just uh, give him a call here during the next uh, little bit, and uh, he will certainly answer your question to the best of his ability. 
How's that, Bob? Yeah, Dave, that sounds great. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll be happy to see what uh, other people's gardens are certainly ah, coming along. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. We talk about some of the early crops. Um, asparagus is one of my favorites. We did have a few change with some great varieties in the Jersey series, and there was a, a farm family out in central uh, New Jersey that actually was responsible for growing a lot, lot of the crowns. Now, if you're going to plant asparagus here, and it's kind of a long-term perennial crop, if you get it done right uh, initially, it will certainly uh, produce for 15 or 20 years. So wow. you want to, and it's the type of thing where it has high value. A lot of the production is moved from the United States into Mexico. People are probably familiar with that, even in the South America. But growing your own, and I'm always a big fan of that because you know how you're handling it. I don't have to use certainly any pesticides on the asparagus crop. They're relatively pest-free. Now, as soon as I say that, we can't have some <laughs> problems. But uh, there isn't a crop that's completely pest-free. But it's uh, pretty trouble-free once you get it established. And, uh, you know, we've had a little change there now. We've had, uh, we, for the longest time, had the Jersey series of uh, crowns that you'd put in the ground. The way these are grown, the major producers would start with seed, of course. And this time of year, these these, uh, plants are beginning to kick off. These spears are turning into kind of flowering heads, fern heads, we call them, and they're producing seed. And that seed was crossed and hybridized, and the major producers were actually seeding them into the ground in large fields. And then uh, after two years, most of us would be buying the two-year-old crowns, which is, you know, an underground woody material with uh, tentacles running all over the place. These are what we're putting in the ground um, to get just a head start. For us to direct seed is a, kind of a, uh, a difficult and challenging process. So we're buying the crowns. And the Jersey series, Jersey Giant, Jersey Supreme, Jersey Knight, these were uh, the dominant series, came out of the breeding programs in New Jersey and grown out by the Walter family farms. They stopped uh, selling the crowns, I believe, in 2021. So now we're looking at uh, some different varieties. And fortunately, we've got one called Millennium that was actually developed in Canada, so we're appreciative of that. Uh, we actually rely on a lot of the Canadian research for any number of our uh, our varieties, from apples to uh, uh, some of the hardy shrub roses, which they do such a beautiful job with. And here in the case of the Millennium uh, Asparagus, this variety was developed at the University of Guelph, which is a great horticultural university. They have great departments there. And uh, these are the hybrids that are so so very, very productive. We've got some older heirloom varieties. Mary Washington's one that's been around forever. Martha Washington, you'll see those in the catalogs. And uh, these are the older varieties. I would say that the new hybrids are probably two to three times more productive. And anyone that has these that has established an asparagus bed, they know how fast they can come, how productive the new hybrids are. So we've got some newer varieties. We're going to have to start looking for some new ones now that the Walter family apparently stopped uh, the selling uh, the crowns, the Jersey Ju- series crowns. I had that question a little bit earlier. Why can't I get the Jersey Supreme, which I think was one of the biggest, uh, highest volume uh, varieties out there? But uh, so there's been a change. I think like everything else changes, and the family dy- dynamics change, and family farms change. And in the case of the asparagus crop, it's kind of gone international. So maybe that had something to do with it. We still have good varieties. We're going to be looking at. Uh, several others that might have good potential for us in this area. But you're not going to be planting it now. You're going to stop harvesting now. Uh, coming into the end of June, we have to stop to harvest the, the uh, 
uh, stalks themselves will be branching out in these fern-like structures, and at this particular point through the remainder of the season, we're going to let those grow. Those That's the factory. This, these ferny materials going to be actually producing the sugars, the carbohydrates that go down in the root mm. and help us get through the uh, the winter. And then they, it's, again, a, a very important spring crop when we can harvest heavily late May, early June. But coming to the end of June, we really have to back off from harvest. Got to let that particular plant recover. Great crop. So if you had the question the other day, can I plant it now? A little late for that. It's a spring crop. So plant on next year. I think what you can do now is preparing a very good bed. Again, a good asparagus bed will last 15, 20, 25 years if done properly. So spend this part of the season opening up an area. You want a lighter soil if you can find it. You want good drainage. If you don't have it, uh, raise it up. Get Make a raised bed. Uh, you'll want to line up uh, your varieties for next year, but those will be purchased in the spring of next year. But you want to get all the perennial weeds, all the quack grass out, otherwise you'll fight those forever. So you want to make sure you get all that eliminated. You've got a season to do that. The other thing is uh, good drainage, I mentioned, but uh, getting some organic matter in the soil. Uh, I think you get one shot with a perennial crop. I'll tell people this on whether it's rhubarb, raspberries, or um, asparagus in this case, you get one opportunity to really prepare the soil. So let's take a soil test. Let's get uh, phosphorus and potassium levels up. Some of these nutrients uh, don't bleed through from the surface very readily, so we got to incorporate them when we're preparing the bed. Let's get some organic in there. With one of our good sponsors, of course, has their garden green compost. You can use your own compost. Let's get uh, the organic level up and prepare a bed for next year. Think about planting at that time, and then you're going to have to let them go for about two seasons until you can really harvest. So we have to get those roots established. We have to get the plant established. But they are a great crop. They're a high-value crop. They're considered a gourmet crop, a good perennial crop that will last for years and years and years if done properly to begin with. But right now, the end of June, we got to stop harvesting uh, that particular crop right. at this time. After harvesting, of course, uh, you got to prepare asparagus. I noticed the uh, obviously the tips are the most delicate part of the asparagus. But well, that's that's right. That's before they expand. These right. are the spears, absolutely. Now they become ferns, so you don't want to let them go too long. Mm. But go ahead, Dave. You were talking about preparation. Yeah, I, I would imagine you want to soften that stuff up a little bit. What boiling or how? how, how what's the best way to cook asparagus? Well, you know, it's uh, it's like a lot of things and. Uh, you know, I had this insight. We don't eat enough fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. uh, in our diet. And uh, a friend of mine said, you know, when we were on the farm, where meat was always the focus of attention, probably the focus of attention, a lot of uh, menus here in the United States, and that the uh, vegetables were not properly prepared, but we had to eat them. So consequently, <laughs> people had a aversion to consuming their vegetables. Asparagus, if you just boil it, green beans, if you just boil them, they get soft and mushy. So... I think that uh, two things, steaming them, just get a little steaming basket, a little water in the bottom of a pan, yeah. steaming, steaming basket, steam not just uh, your asparagus, but steam the green beans as well. And then I think grilling, grilling has become so popular everywhere, and I think grilled asparagus with a little bit of sea salt on there is absolutely delicious. Yeah. So we're, we're paying a little bit more attention. Uh, you certainly can use some things like garlic, salt, and other seasoning. Uh, but grilling and steaming, I think, is the direction that people should be going. And then they really uh, can be the, the focus of your menu and of your diet. And I think that would be good, certainly, for all of us. But high-value crop and asparagus considered a gourmet, gourmet crop. 
don't just boil it or it's going to get turned to mush on you and then it will not be in that gourmet category, Dave. Good info. Thank you, Bob. We'll be back more of the Bob Olin Show. It's uh, 930 now at KDAL. Once again, Bob Olin. Uh, Bob, I uh, was looking at grass seed the other day. You got a little okay. spot in the lawn I want to put some grass in. I have never seen so many different varieties, shapes, and sizes of grass seed. I mean, you got grass for sun, you got grass for shade, you got high traffic grass, this, that, and the other thing. It's amazing. It is kind of amazing. And, uh, you know, it's like varieties of, of anything in this free society. You, you, what did we have? Uh, 20 different uh, varieties of toilet, toilet paper. When we had that shortage, <laughs> it was amazing to me because uh, when I was doing a little shopping, I didn't panic over that. But yeah. most places still had something, but as one shopper next to me was saying, yeah, but they don't have my favorite variety. Ah, right. <laughs> but maybe the same thing is true about uh, grass seed. Um, I think, you know, I go back to kind of the basics, Dave. You're absolutely right. We've got some interesting mixtures out there as well. Uh, if, you know, a lawn is a perennial. Now, it's kind of interesting. We've gone to this uh, concept of a bee lawn, and people ask what that's all about. And that's about really, in your grass seed mix, not having just a pure grass, but actually tolerating some of the clovers, which would be one of the species. Uh, I think what we call low-stature flowering perennial plants. That's kind of a mouthful, but uh, you want a plant that, that produces a flower mixed in with your grasses, so they have to be compatible. They have to tolerate each other, certainly, and one can't crowd the other out. And with this uh, low stature of flowering, the flower has to be low, otherwise you're just going to mow the flower off. And of course, with the flowers, we're trying to b- provide some food, uh, nectar, as well as pollen for the pollinating Insects that are doing the job in our forests and our vegetable gardens. Been concerned about that. There's been concern about a significant decline in some of the native species of uh, pollinating bees in particular. And I think it comes from, uh, you know, we obviously got monocultures. When you look at farm country, what is it? Corn and beans, corn and beans just about everywhere. They're the backbone of agriculture uh, for a number of different reasons. They use both corn and beans in a number of products, not just direct consumption, but a lot goes into animal feeds and all kinds of other industrial products. So to get to these monocultures that are no good for the native population of uh, pollinating insects. So this is where the small landowner, this is where the, uh, the suburban and urban owner can uh, do a little something. They can have a pollinator garden out there, certainly pollinating trees and shrubs, and now this concept of bee lawns, Dave. So uh, if we want grass, and grass certainly has its... Uh, a uh, significant place, obviously, and uh, you want to look for, I, I think in this area, a couple of species. You mentioned uh, sun and shade. Sun, right. common Kentucky bluegrass, uh, it's what everyone would really like to grow. They've taken the common Kentucky blue, which is not particularly fussy, but may not be quite as fine textured, as beautiful if you want a manicured lawn, and there are a lot of what we call elite uh, bluegrass varieties. Well, maybe if you've got a beautiful fairway on a on a high price golf course, you want to look at some of the elites. Uh, they do require more fertility. Bluegrass, particularly in northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, uh, does require additional nitrogen. Uh, grass is nitrogen feeder, and our native nitrogen levels are pretty low in our in our soils. You get farther south in these deep, rich, loamy soils, black in color. Uh, there's a lot of organic, and they've got a pretty good residual bank of nitrogen. We don't have that in northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin. So 
you're going to, with elite variety, you're going to have to plan on fertility, three or four applications of fertility. You're going to have to also uh, plan on more irrigation because they, they really do require, they like them to grow continuously through the season. That means you're going to have to get some moisture there when it gets dry in July and August. So staying with just a common bluegrass for the sunny areas. Now we want low fescues for the shady areas. And uh, you will see when you spin around that package, and it's interesting, uh, packaged varieties, the mixtures, have these different combinations. There's a lot of fescue in there, but tall fescues, which are not appropriate for us in this particular area, not hardy enough. So you want to look for either uh, creeping fescues or red fescues, chewing fescues. Uh, these are fescues that grow closer to the ground. They're good and hardy, and they tolerate shade. That's one of the real advantages of fescues. So... Heavy on the fescues for shady areas, heavy on the common bluegrass for sunny areas, and um, maybe a combination of the two. You will always see some ryegrass mixed in as well. We've got annual ryes, which jump out pretty quickly. They germinate quickly, uh, but they don't last through the season. They're annuals. We've got some perennial ryes. Uh, I don't know how perennial they are because many of them are not really hardy for northern Minnesota in a northern in an open winter. Now, last year we had early uh, snow and we covered a lot of them up. I'm sure a lot of the perennial rye uh, did overwinter, but perennial rye has become a very a significant part of a lot of mixtures, but one I would shy away from in Minnesota, Wisconsin. So look for bluegrass, fescue, sunshade, and then uh, remember here we're going to have to have a little additional nitrogen, uh, maybe one shot in the spring. I, I, you know, I like to simplify things because I guess I'm kind of a simple person, but... Uh, I like two days, two holiday uh, weekends to think about Memorial Weekend, a little application of fertilizer there, and then in the fall, that's going to even be more important, application of fertilizer around Labor Day, very early fall, uh, to get the uh, plant strong coming into the winter and to multiply the, the actual stand count of the population of the plant. So those two weekends, we're going to do some work with lawn care. If you're really going to be fussy, you're going to be doing it, of course, every week or, or on a very regular basis. And that's totally up to you. You still can uh, grow your lawn the way you want to grow it. We are uh, letting those clippings lie, of course, unless they become a heavy mat. Uh, there was a time when we swept everything up, and, of course, they can't be landfilled any longer. So they either have to be taken to a compost site if you're collecting your clippings or let, let them lie on the grass. Don't let the grass get, get too long. Uh, you're actually, with that green material, you can actually recycle some of the nitrogen. So there's chlorophyll in the green clippings. That has a nitrogen base to it. You, you let the things lie, and actually you can reduce or minimize the amount of additional nitrogen that you have to apply to the lawn. Lots of discussion there, Dave, but that's a good topic. That's right. Try to keep it as simple as we possibly can for folks. All right, let's head to the phone and see what's going on here. Hi, who's this? Uh, Bruce on the North Shore. Oh, Bruce, how are hey, you? Bruce, we haven't hey. heard from you in a while. How are you, Mike? Well, yeah, it, it, I'm well, I'm, I'm well, Bob, and thank good. you, Dave. Dave, how long have I been listening to you? I'm not sure. I've been around for a while, so if, well, if you've been listening, when you started here. <laughs> I had to be early '90s at KDAL. Well, I do, uh, but I, RJ and Dave and all that. Well, that uh, goes back, yeah, into the '70s. <laughs> yeah, forty years <laughs> at least. That's fantastic. Yeah. Same with Bob. You yeah, know, we've been around a while. You've been sure. doing this, Bob. <laughs> well. I hate to say it, but probably in that same uh, same time frame, way back to Rick Jordan's days, and uh, yeah, it goes back quite a ways. The KDL's been a good home for a long time, for sure. 
Well, yeah, I wouldn't hate to say that because you do a great job and what a beautiful place to live. Now, I have a couple of things. Because uh, I live up the shore, I drive the scenic drive often yeah. between uh, Duluth and and uh, Knife River. There are yeah. lots of people that just shave their lawns. I mean, it would be acres and acres. And because I'm a beekeeper, it's like, oh, ah. shucks. You know, if they just would let them go, you know, n- nobody is going out there to play golf. Uh I so I'm just advocating for that. Just let your lawns go. Next well, item. I go certainly like your like your comment. It's it's a change, Bruce, that uh, that we've seen. There was a time there in certain neighborhoods, in particular, where everything had to be manicured, and of course that's not bee friendly at all. And there is a no. new awareness now. You're both a vegetable grower, and you've got your honeybees. Uh, which yep. is a real nice combination. Let me ask you, what is what does the bee flight look like this year? Has, has the weather been relatively conducive for good uh, 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 pollen co- or uh, nectar collection? Watching the hives this morning, they're they're busy as ever, so it's great. What happened, which I think you know, is that right after our apple trees blossomed, we had that hellacious rainstorm. Yeah. So it knocked all the blossoms off the trees. So I don't know, but they, you know, they get, I realized recently that, that uh, bees can get a lot of pollen out of lupins. They and can. We have lupins all over the place. <laughs> lupin, and you talk me up the door, sure. Oh, you yeah. Know, it's, it, lupin is a, becoming kind of a controversial perennial flower. Why? Well, it's uh, what you see there is a large leaf lupin that is not native, and they've become very aggressive in some areas. So we've actually got groups uh, that are opposed to the spread of lupin because they do force out uh, just about all of the other native plants, which aren't near, nearly as aggressive. So this is one of those, into, they're beautiful along the uh, roadside, and they are a source of, of nectar for bees, for sure. But uh, like with all things today, everything is always black and white, and uh, this is the large leaf lupin. Some of the wild we are, have such a thing as wild lupin, but they're very diminutive. They're not aggressive, and they've been forced out by uh, by these lupin, which actually come in from the western part of the United States. They become very aggressive. They're beautiful, but I've noticed the spread not just along the North Shore, up along the Gunflint Trail. Up on Highway 53, north of Duluth, yep. Rice Lake yep. Road, just looping it just about everywhere. And the thing uh, about that is, though, they only grow in cruddy soil. I mean, it's like gravel and <laughs> and roadsides, and that's why you see them along the roadside. Right, they right. don't, they don't, they don't uh, invade other places. But let me get to my question. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I've got an apple tree that. I think I got from a local uh, horticulturalist, and sure. um, it it's not it hasn't popped yet. I mean, it, it looks dead. Oh, yeah. If you don't have any form of uh, uh, leafy bud right now, I'm afraid. You know, that I mean, I'm not done. okay. It should be popped for sure by this time. All right. So then, I wonder if you know if. It happened to if like nurseries or something like that would take my tree back. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, some do have guarantees, 
and yeah. uh, they, they certainly might. And I think it'd be worth a try. Uh, you, you know, a good apple tree is fifty, sixty bucks today, maybe more. I've seen them over a hundred. You betcha. So they're not yeah. inexpensive, and some do guarantee them. Definitely worth contacting that uh, that source and seeing you know, what I, might have happened. I think I'm going to do that. I would definitely now, do that. How, how's your greenhouse? Uh, pretty good. Things are moving along. I did have. A little bit more winter kill on some of my apples, the younger ones, too. So it, it, it was a funny winter, and winter's what we're always kind of fighting here. So we want to stay with the hardiest material. Just like in the laws, a little discussion there. We want to make sure we, we stay with hardy species because we still are Zone 3. Along the lake, there's Zone 4, but we're definitely not Zone 5. A little bit of that in, in Bayfield, but other than that, uh, we still have a cold climate, Bruce, and we got to think about yep. hardiness. And that may be what occurred with uh, with your apple potentially there, young tree. I'm old fashioned, Bob, and I just stick with Harrelson. They've you know, been working for me. Oh man, and then for you too, Dave. Dave yeah. has a Harrelson. You know, when Honeycrisp came along, is real interesting uh, because people said, "Well, we'll never sell another Harrelson." Well, Honeycrisp isn't as hardy. It was introduced as a Zone Four, not a Zone Three, and people in uh, the northern part of uh, Minnesota here, certainly up in northern St. Louis County, they found out that in an open, tough year, they lost all their Honeycrisp. I lost one, and I'm Zone 3B, and, uh, you know, go for really? a while, produce for a while, but certainly uh, Honeycrisp crisp has not pushed out uh, some of the oldies but goodies uh, there, Bruce, you know? Yeah, you know, yeah, the, and, and, and they're, they're, uh, I have one, and I like the apple. It's a little tart for me, and that's why I like Harrelson. Chuck. You know, it's, it's uh, like driving a Studebaker. <laughs> well, it's going to be around. I've seen them all the way up in Ontario. And, uh, you know, I believe they were introduced in the 30s. University of Minnesota in, uh, introduction, great introduction. And we've got the Harrelson. We've got Harold Red, which has a little bit of a reddish color. But they are yeah. a hard apple. They're a good pie apple. They're very, very late. But uh, that tree is going to make it through the winter for you. So they're going to be around for a long time to come, for sure. Well, Bob, thanks for answering my questions. And uh, Dave, Bob, you guys do a great show. Thanks. Hey, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 947. Appreciate it, yeah, let's take another break. Be right back. And we're back. Bob Olin Show here on the 28th of June already, Bob. We'll be into J- July by the next show. That's almost shocking to me, to be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> Spring goes by so fast. You know, the other thing, I mentioned the fact that uh, stop harvesting the asparagus. Uh, pretty soon, about July 4th, uh, we're going to stop harvesting the rhubarb, which is kind of a shame. And uh, for me, the crop, that crop was really spectacular this year. For some others, I heard they, they struggled a little bit. Maybe it was winter weather, one thing or another. But um, good crops for us, and certainly in northern, uh, northern Minnesota here are just great crops. Fun call from Bruce, and Bruce being a beekeeper and... Uh, He's kind of pointed out this transition to, uh, you know, maybe staying away from the the perfect weed-free uh, lawn, and uh, certainly leaving some areas. I think uh, this last spring we did this program on the integrated landscape, and from my perspective, I kind of like that area where yes, you're going to have a lawn, you're going to tolerate uh, certainly some clover in there for the for the not just the honeybees but the native bees. You're going to leave some areas that are just open, native, and natural. A lot of our native pollinating insects, and why they're so important, uh, Bruce mentioned the, the apple crop. Uh, certainly we need these pollinators to move that pollen around. Uh, uh, moving the pollen, 
the male portion of the plant, so we get fertilization. Without fertilization, we don't get that fruit to develop, whether it's blueberries, whether it's honeyberries, whether it's apple, whether it's raspberries. We really got to have these pollinators uh, mixing it up for us. So native bees, uh, certainly the cultivated bees, the honeybees are all important. Uh, but the one thing that people might want to consider, just a little area where we don't disturb the soil, uh, we let it go back to some of the native plants, uh, and those, those can be very attractive as well. But they actually, the native bees overwinter down either in the soil or in some of the stalks of some of the uh, perennial material that's growing. So if we constantly cultivate everything or if we try to control all of the native materials, uh, then we've really eliminated habitat for some of our native pollinators. So uh, certainly some lawn, um, high traffic areas, you want to be able to use your landscape for sure. Uh, you don't have to be quite as fussy about every weed being eliminated. And then uh, certainly uh, some other areas where you're going to have some vegetables there, you're going to have some small fruits, you're going to have uh, some areas that we're going to just leave natural uh, so that we can, in fact, have this nice integrated environment. It almost mimics what we see in nature. Nature really doesn't like this complete monoculture of one <laughs> variety, one species. It has typically kind of a nice mix out there so that we have this balance between different plants and uh, one complements uh, another, Dave. Yeah, maybe keep the front yard for show and the backyard for the bees. You can certainly do that, for <laughs> sure. You or you can get some of those beautiful flowering perennials in the pollinator yeah. garden, even a little chunk of that in the front yard, so they can be for show as well. So we're seeing that. And one of the themes I've worked with a little bit this year is uh, let's get some of those flowering shrubs in there as well. Right. So, uh, you know, they can certainly provide this great uh, source of food for some of our pollinating insects, as well as for uh, Bruce's bees and all the honey, uh, the honey producers in the area. Uh, kind of important to have that, uh, certainly that integrated and that mix in the landscape. Uh, back to the phone for another question. Hi, who's this? Hello. Hi. Hi. My name is. Can you? Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you good. I have a question about our big strawberry patch. It's huge. There are a lot of blossoms, and we're not getting berries. Uh, you're not getting any berry formation at all? Uh, I just started to see a real few. Okay. Uh, the biggest risk we have to uh, our June-bearing strawberries is very cold weather or a frost that will knock the blossoms off. That would be the number one risk that may have occurred. We had some warm weather. We had some frost in low pockets, various places. That is a risk. The other risk is we've got an insect pest uh, called a tarnish plant bug. So you're going to want to watch this fruit as it develops. If the fruit really is uh, uh, very uh, immature, uh, gnarly, it doesn't fully develop, it's kind of uh, uh, just real tough, it, it, not a typical strawberry, uh, this can be this insect pest uh, called the lignus bug or the tarnish plant bug. And uh, those can be two problems. So, a commercial strawberry producer. How do I identify those bugs? Are they mm, well, you'd have, to sweep, you'd have to sweep them and look. Yeah, you can get an actual insect or a butterfly net, sweep and look for those. Uh, they oh. attack right when the blossoms are opening up, and then they can cause the blossom drop and cause this poor fruit development. So, watch the fruit as it develops. Uh, if you've got good, healthy plants, a good June-bearing variety, uh, risk of frost. 
a major commercial uh, grower, you really can't do this on a consistent, regular basis without overhead irrigation for frost control, and you have to be extraordinarily careful about this particular insect because those are probably the two downfalls that we have for a good quality strawberry crop. So take a little closer and see what you got. And if, in fact, you've missed your crop this year for one reason or another, keep those plants very healthy going forward, and uh, you'll have another good crop next year if you've got a good perennial uh, patch established. So sometimes we have a tough year. A commercial grower can't afford that, so they have all kinds of uh, protection systems in mind. They don't always uh, get 100% protection, but certainly they've got to have overhead irrigation, plenty of water to keep that going. But for you, I think uh, if you miss the crop, uh, let's just keep the plants healthy so next year's crop will be even better. All right. Thanks for the call, too. Appreciate it. We did have a call off the air, Bob. Somebody wanted to know about their hollyhocks. I'm not even sure what that is, but apparently they got holes in the leaves. Yeah, we have a a number of pests. Again, uh, flea beetle can cause, if they're small diminutive holes, it's probably Mm. flea beetle. And, uh, again, um, with a hollyhock, uh, we have a lot of rust. That's probably the biggest problem, a fungal uh-huh. problem. But if there are actually holes in the leaves, more than likely it's flea beetle. Once again, we've got to be very careful. Uh, I would probably, you know, if it's a relatively minor uh, component, the leaves aren't gone, I'd let it go. Mm-hmm. Any insecticide that you're going to use could also be damaging to our pollinating bee population, so we have uh-huh. to be extremely careful there. So in most cases, I would tolerate a little damage there uh, just so we don't cause a problem with our pollinating insects. All right, Bob, we've got to wrap it up. Uh, have a great uh, 4th of July. We'll catch you on the 5th. Well, I'll, man, that's hard to believe. <laughs> I uh, wish everybody else, uh, and as uh, one of our callers there indicated, what a gorgeous place to be living and uh, these wonderful freedoms we have. Everyone enjoy that 4th, and we'll be back on the 5th. All right, thanks, Bob.